Welcome to Obesity, a Disease, the official Obesity Medicine Association podcast exploring the many facets of the disease of obesity. In this episode, sponsored by Vivas, we'll be hearing from internal medicine and pediatric physician, Dr. Jennifer Paisley. Joining her is Dr. Sherry Sakowitz-Sukar, the director and founder of Healthways Valley Center for Pediatric Wellness. Today, our speakers discuss preventing, diagnosing, treating, and monitoring obesity in pediatric patients. Obesity, a Disease podcast is brought to you by the Obesity Medicine Association, the clinical leader in obesity medicine. My name is Dr. Jennifer Paisley, and I'm honored to help host this episode of Obesity, a Disease, a podcast sponsored by the Obesity Medicine Association. I'm an internal medicine and pediatrics physician with St. Elizabeth Health System in the greater Cincinnati area, where I practice obesity medicine within my primary care practice. Today, we have with us Dr. Sherry Sakowitz-Sigar, who is the director and founder of Healthways Valley Center for Pediatric Wellness and Weight Management in Ridwood, New Jersey. She's here with us today to talk about pediatric obesity. Uh, Sherry, would you like to go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came into the field of pediatric obesity medicine? Sure. Thanks so much, Denny, for such a nice introduction. So um, a little bit about me. I really struggled with my weight growing up, like so many of my colleagues, and really considered myself a chronic dieter and binge eater while growing up. And I was always looking for answers. And I was really interested in anything to do with weight loss, weight management, and nutrition. And during my pediatric residency in Brooklyn, I had the opportunity to work with our pediatric cardiologist who at the time had a real interest in obesity and started one of the first multidisciplinary obesity programs in New York City. So during my residency, I spent all of my free time, electives, et cetera, with her trying to learn about all aspects of obesity. And after my graduation from uh, residency, I was offered a unique opportunity, which was to become the associate program director of the residency program and also become the associate director of the obesity program. So, of course, I was very excited about that and took that position. And I was in Brooklyn. Brooklyn at Brookdale Hospital for about nine years. And Brooklyn, I'm sorry, Brookdale was located in the inner city of Brooklyn and is really considered to be like the ground zero of obesity. Um, we actually did a study at that time and about 50% of the population, the catch area for our hospital was considered to be obese. And this is the um, pediatric patient. So we learned everything. Um, there was just so much to learn there. Anyway, several years later, I became the program director for the residency program, and I continued to work in our obesity program for until 2015, where um, Valley Hospital in Ridgewood, New Jersey, recruited me to come and open up a pediatric weight management program. So I left academics and gladly accepted this opportunity as I knew this was my passion. I currently practice obesity medicine 100% of the time, and I absolutely love it. And I really couldn't imagine doing anything else. I think that really reflects, like you said, uh, a lot of what draws us to this field. Um, so similar to yourself, you know, as a kid who grew up in rural uh, Midwest United States, you know, struggled quite a bit and got to have that other side where we practice quite a bit with the rural population um, throughout my residency and early career. You know, one of the things I really like to help when I educate both patients or residents or students that might be rotating with me is really help them understand what we mean when we talk about obesity. 
So for those of our listeners that may be new today um, to our podcast, what do you discuss with maybe trainees or patients when you start talking to them about obesity? What does it mean to have the disease of obesity? Okay, great question. So obesity is really just a medical term that we define by a person's BMI. And BMI is body mass index. And it's really just a measure of body fat based on your height and weight. In adults, we use absolute numbers to define obesity. And we know that anything over 25 to 29.9 is considered overweight. And obesity is, a, is anyone with a BMI of over 30. But for pediatrics, we don't use absolute numbers because the distribution of BMI changes with age, just like height and weight. We know kids are supposed to grow and gain weight. So we use BMI percentiles to define obesity. So what we do is we calculate the BMI and we plot it on a, uh, on a growth chart and we see what percentile they're in. And we have definitions of the different percentiles. So anything less than the 85th percentile is considered to be of normal weight. Anything between the 85th and the 95th percentile is considered to be overweight or at risk for obesity. Anything over the 95th percentile is considered obese. Now, recently, we came up with more definitions for obesity because just being over the 95th percentile doesn't really give us a good idea of how much risk a person would be. So anyone with just an, a, a percentile above the 95th percentile is considered class one obesity. Anything between, anything, sorry, over the 120th percentile is considered class two obesity. And anything over the 140th percentile is considered class three obesity. It also corresponds with a BMI of over 40. I think those definitions are incredibly helpful, especially the pediatrician, you know, when we're trying to educate and counsel our patients on what it means about obesity or the degree of obesity. Uh, it really helps put it into perspective with what maybe some of our family practice colleagues or fellow MedPeds people like me think about when we think about the classifications for severity. Uh, I'm also a big fan. I like to point out the extended BMI charts that clinicians can access. Do you use those at all with your patients or in clinic? Are you, what are you referring to when you say extended BMI? The ones that take that, you know, as we see more kids at that top part of the growth curve, it's those extended BMI charts, they can plot it out on to follow those trajectories into the 130th, 140th, 150th, as they think about monitoring or tracking obesity progress as well. Right. I don't use those in the clinics, but I mean, it, it, with every patient that comes in, I calculate exactly what percentile they're in and I'll, I'll track it myself. So if they were at the hundred and, you know, over the 140th, I'll continue to monitor that um, and explain to them that the more, the higher their percentage, the more at risk they are for developing any of the comorbidities that um, we see with, you know, greater amounts of fat. And I think that can also help us segue into kind of our, our next area that we worry about. Pre-pandemic prevalence of pediatric obesity was thought to be leveling off at about 19 to 20% overall throughout pediatric cases. Um, and data had suggested that maybe we were even seeing a slight decline. Uh, as we make our way through the COVID-19 pandemic and saw the impact obesity really had on diseases such as COVID-19, do we have any more recent insights into maybe how the pandemic and the structure of society changing affected our rates of pediatric obesity? 
Yes, that's a great question. So traditionally, since I've been involved with obesity medicine, I've always used the NHANES data to kind of follow the prevalence of obesity through different age groups and um, different races. And the latest data that we have from the NHANES is from the 2017-2020, which are really the pre-pandemic numbers. So we, we don't know the NHANES data, but we have another data set that um, was just released, and it's another CDC study, and it's called the ICVIA, and it's from an ambulatory electronic medical record database, and they are estimating that the amount of obesity post-pandemic um, is about 22.4%, and their numbers pre-pandemic were about 19.3%, so that's really a significant increase in the amount of obesity that we're seeing post-pandemic. and. You know what, Jenny, it's not really a surprise to me since the schools were closed, kids were less active, people were eating more, um, a lot of the activities and sports were canceled. So I think that we all, you know, have been seeing it clinically, but, you know, it's, it's now we're seeing it actually in numbers and I'm definitely not surprised. I know that a similar study was done at Kaiser Permanente and they found something similar. Something else that was interesting in the study is that they found that children with obesity before the pandemic actually experience higher amounts of weight gain than um, children of normal weight before the pandemic. And it, they went on to say that the average person with obesity gains about one pound a month over the six months between March and November, 2020, where the average healthy pre-pandemic you know, pre healthy weight individual gained less than half of that. So it's really interesting data that was released. And um, like I said, I'm not surprised. And yes, it is to answer your question, getting worse. I, I'd agree, I found that study quite interesting. And I think it just also further goes to show how important things like our routine office visits where we're maybe addressing on weight with children and their families, as well as the early intervention services that might've been available to people throughout their community at school or daycare may have had on that stabilization of our obesity rates. Yes. I agree. On that note, you know, I think the pandemic um, that it had on those increasing rates further underscores just that importance of the early intervention and the potential it may have had with regards to tracking of obesity from pediatrics into adulthood. You know, what are some of the long-term health risks of pediatric obesity that you educate your patients or your families on? Okay, um, sure, Jenny. So unfortunately, most children do not outgrow obesity and really tracks into adulthood. We know um, from different studies that about 55% of obese children go on to being obese adolescents. And also studies indicate that over 80% of obese adolescents become obese adults. Now, the problem is that many of the chronic diseases we see in adults today are directly linked to obesity. And we know, you know, especially four of the leading causes of death, such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, stroke, they're all directly linked to obesity. And experts believe that this generation will have a shorter lifespan than their parents by like about three to five years. Also, one more thing I just wanted to add is we know that obesity breeds obesity. If one parent is obese, then the child is three times more likely to be obese. And if two parents are obese, then there's a 10 times the risk of their children being obese. 
I do, and I, I talk about that a lot with my uh, patients and uh, their families as well about kind of that generational shift uh, with regards to obesity. Um, one of the things that I've seen a lot, at least in my practice, is that we're seeing them younger and younger, and oftentimes with a more severe phenotype than kind of that generation before them. So Sherry, as we kind of talked about, you know, children with parents with obesity are more likely to have obesity themselves. What are some of those long-term health risks of pediatric obesity? And what do we know from the data about the benefits treatment and early intervention in child may have on some of those comorbidities? Okay, Jenny. Um, so we know that the less obese kids we have, the less obese adults we have. So we know that cardiovascular disease starts in childhood. We know that from the Bogalusa heart study. And so if we could treat the kids and they don't develop these problems, then they won't develop them early on into adulthood. So less obese kids, less obese adults, less uh, disease and longer lifespan. I think definitely better quality of life for both the kids and the adults. Um, and of course, which is so important, saving money. So if we can intervene early on, we could save billions of dollars to our healthcare system. I think those are all excellent points. And you know, one of the other things I like to point out is, is we have younger and younger patients being affected with obesity the impact that also has for our workforce and in productivity numbers as a direct societal cost of managing the disease. How much weight loss do you generally counsel patients or their families on to maybe help see some of those benefits with regards to cardiovascular improvements? When it comes to weight loss, a little goes a long way. So we know that about 5% of weight loss from baseline is clini clinically meaningful. And we know that even the FDA gives guidance for medications and they'll approve anti-obesity medications if they have at least a 5% weight loss. So in terms of the way I counsel my patients is the amount of weight loss that we need is really dependent on the comorbid uh, conditions that we see that, the, that each individual patient has. So depending upon what their issue is, is dependent, dependent on how much weight loss would be needed. So for example, if somebody needed glycemic improvement or diabetes prevention, we know through the studies that even as little as 2.5% can make a difference. I know for um, triglyceride reduction or HDL reduction somewhere, around 5% would, would really improve those things. Sleep apnea or fatty liver disease, we're looking at about 10% weight loss that would improve uh, that, those conditions. Yeah, so it really does go to show it's only a little bit can go a long ways. Many of our patients hopefully start engagement or conversations with their primary care provider. Um, what are some of those early interventions that a primary care provider might feel confident in discussing or starting with their patients? Okay, sure. So um, primary care providers should really focus on, of course, prevention and then lifestyle interventions. And we, there's a staged approach that the AAP came out with, um, and it was recommendations for obesity treatment. And stage one and stage two could really be done at the primary care provider's office. And that is just, like I said, for, uh, focus on healthy lifestyles, talk about sugar-sweetened beverages, the importance of sleep, the importance of breastfeeding, the importance of being active. Um, you know, it gets a little bit more strict with the structured weight management. They call for monthly follow-ups and 
less TV uh, screen time and just more structured meals, making sure the kids get enough fruits and vegetables and lean proteins. Once they are unable to do that, um, the primary pediatrician should really refer to a, to a comprehensive multidisciplinary intervention um, where there is a obesity specialist, uh, somebody who is um, involved with like behavioral counseling, a registered dietitian, and an exercise specialist. Um, their weekly best visits should um, be happening. And after that, stage four is really tertiary care intervention where they are talking about bariatric surgery. I think those are excellent ideas and, and always encourage um, primary care providers and general pediatricians to make sure they reach out and know where maybe some of those centers are in their regions. Frequently, when I began talking about some of those interventions uh, or even access to treatment, barriers can arise such as barriers at home and school or the social fabric that they live in. What are some of the common barriers you face in your own practice and what approaches do you use to maybe help overcome them? Okay, so first and foremost, I mean, there's definitely um, financial uh, barrier insurance coverage. A lot of the insurances don't cover obesity treatments. They don't cover obesity medications. They don't cover surgeries. So that is a huge barrier to treatment. I think on a social level, um, home level, parents don't want to make a change. Sometimes, you know, one parent wants to make a change. One parent doesn't. Sometimes there are siblings in the family that have problems like, opposite obesity that need to gain weight. Um, so really just lack of support by households. Another barrier is just lack of time. The kids have a lot of work to do. They don't want to do it. Another barrier is food cravings and hunger. I mean, it's really hard for kids to lose weight. And when they're hungry and when they're craving foods, it's hard to say no. I think also some of the comorbidities to um, that that a lot of our patients are feeling, especially the ones with severe obesity, they they have a hard time moving and they have a hard time doing what we tell them to do. They just physically can't do it. Another barrier to treatment is just lack of training by health uh, professionals. A lot of the pediatricians are not trained properly in uh, obesity management, how to talk to people and the correct changes, how to guide people on. School is a barrier itself. A lot of schools give hot lunches out. They're not necessarily, they don't necessarily give out the healthiest choices. Teachers give out snacks that are unhealthy. And also kids feel peer pressure to eat unhealthy snacks when they see their friends eating it. They don't want to be different and eat healthy food when all their friends are eating processed foods. I think, I think that pretty much sums up the barriers. So as we think about what might be some of our advanced options that we could offer, once that general pediatrician or family practice provider has sent someone to a comprehensive obesity medicine program, what kind of tools or strategies might be offered to help patients overcome some of those barriers we just, we mentioned? Okay, Jenny. Um, so I always start first with lifestyle modification. And here I talk to the families, we gather support for new behaviors, and we really try to create a, a healthy home environment. And we try to focus on healthy foods and beverages, physical activity, sleep, screen time. I like to talk to them um, and really try to engage the parents and how to make changes. And I use motivational interviewing and I do a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy and, you know, really try to just focus on the healthy environment and habits. 
I think those are great ones. And, and it's kind of a skill we learn as we practice and train in obesity medicine. Um, I oftentimes find though that sometimes I need to layer in medication or pharmacotherapy to actually maybe make it easier for patients to make those changes they're working so hard to implement. What role do medicines play in the management of pediatric obesity? And what are a few you find yourself using throughout your practice? Okay, Jenny. So I have recently been using a lot of medications. When I first got started in pediatric obesity medicine, we really didn't have a lot in our toolbox. And up until about two years ago, we really didn't have anything. We used some drugs off-label, which I'm not going to talk about today, but we currently have three medications that have been approved by the FDA for chronic weight management for pediatrics. And I just like to mention a few of them. Orlistat is a medication I do not use because of the unpleasant side effects. It's a gastric pancreatic lipase inhibitor, reducing the absorption of about a third of the fatty acids consumed by food. Like I said, I did use this earlier in my career and I do not use this now. I don't think this is a good option for kids because of the side effects, but I have recently been using two other medications. One is Saxenda, one is Qsimia. Saxenda is a GLP-1 analog, GLP-1 meaning glucagon-like peptide. And what it does is it decreases gastric emptying, it decreases hunger, it increases satiety, and really has a central effect on the hypothalamus. We do see some side effects with this, some nausea, vomiting, headache, pancreatitis, but we do get really good data. This medication has been approved for adults for a long time. It was just approved for pediatrics I think about two years ago. So the data is for, you know, they did a study with about 250 patients. It was a randomized control trial. Half of the patients received the medication, half of them were receiving placebo. And they really had good data, which is why it was approved, obviously. And they had a reduction in BMI of at least 5% in about 51 out of 113 patients, where only um, 20 out of 105 patients who received the placebo had the reduction in BMI. So that was good data. Um, The other one, the reduction in BMI of at least 10% in about 33 out of 113 patients receiving the liraglutide and only nine out of 105 patients had a reduction in BMI of at least 10% that received placebo. So you can see that the the Sexenda is definitely a good choice. One problem with Sexenda that I find is that it's very expensive and a lot of insurance do not cover it. So unfortunately, I cannot use this as much as I would like to use it. I'm sure you're probably finding the same thing. I I really do. And it causes me a little, you know, upset days in my clinic because you do get patients that have such meaningful weight loss on it. You know, as we talked about earlier, it's that five to 10% and we're going to be able to see these good reductions in cardiovascular disease and comorbidity outcomes. Exactly. That that's going to change. Um, I would say I I do see better coverage now than I did a few years ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. We just have to keep encouraging our colleagues in advocacy to keep working hard at what they do. I agree. The other medication, which I love, and I've been using since it's been approved, which was, I think, in late June or early July, is Qsimia. And that medication has been approved in the adult population for a a while, but has just recently been approved for pediatrics. And it's a combination of two drugs, Phentermine, which is a norepi-releasing agent, and topiramate, which is a GABA receptor modulator. And the fentermine acts as your appetite suppressant. And the topiramate is is just amazing because it really helps decrease cravings for the kids. And they just stop thinking about food. 
Um, I've been seeing amazing results with Tusimia. A lot of my patients who failed the Sexenda um, treatments are doing very well in Tusimia. So I just want to review some of the data that was um, in the studies in which it got approved from. So they did a 56-week placebo-controlled study of about 223 adolescents. And there were three arms, um, about 54 patients received Qsimia 7.5 milligrams by 46. That's the second highest dose of Qsimia. Qsimia, as you know, comes in four different strengths. They also had an arm of Qsimia 15 milligrams per 92, and they had placebo. So the results were that the Qsimia 15 milligrams per 92 lost about 7.1% BMI. This was after 56 weeks. And as you know, and I mentioned earlier, in order for a medication to be approved by the FDA, it has to have at least 5%. I will tell you, I am seeing a much even higher uh, BMI loss than that clinically, but this is the result of, of the um, data. And I think it's, it's really good data. There are side effects to Qsimia. There are different, what's interesting is there are different side effects for, between pediatrics and adults. So for the pediatrics, the side effects that we worry about are depression, dizziness, joint pain, fever, and flu and ankle sprain. That's what's in the data. Um, I haven't seen uh, the flu or ankle sprains or fever. Um, to be honest with you, I'm seeing more of the adult side effects that it was reported in the adult data than what they've reported the, the pediatric data. More pins and needles and more dizziness and um, impaired sense of taste. That's really what I'm seeing with, with pediatrics also. I'd agree. Those are similar to what I see. And I also like to remind maybe some of my colleagues or patients, you know, the benefit of Kissimia is it's that FDA approval for long-term, but we do have data on the safety and efficacy of fentermine, which is also approved for short-term use in patients 16 and above. So really- yes extends on that long history. An area that I worked most closely with in a prior career, which was as a pediatric medical advisor for bariatric surgery, I frequently have a discussion with my patients and their families regarding thoughts or options to pursue weight loss surgery as an adolescent. In your clinic, how often does the conversation regarding adolescent bariatric surgery come up with your patients? And who might you think of sending for an evaluation to consider weight loss surgery? Okay, so on the first day, when I see all my new patients, we go through all the different treatments for pediatric obesity. I always tell them we're gonna start with lifestyle modification. We talk about medications. Um, depending upon what their BMI is, I have the conversation about surgery. Definitely my patients with severe obesity, um, you know, BMI over 40 or type three, I definitely have that conversation that it definitely is an option. Um, because I think, you know, as you know, the AAP is calling for more access to bariatric surgery for teens. I think, you know, surgery is just very underutilized. And um, I think the problem, and I think the AAP has come out with guidance for this, is that not enough people are referring their patients for this. I think um, bariatric surgery has such amazing data. The, the weight loss that we see with bariatric surgery, we don't see with medications and with lifestyle modification. So depending upon how much weight the patient needs to lose is when I have that conversation about the surgery. Some people come in and they tell me straight, you know, immediately that they're not interested in that. They only want to do lifestyle modification or maybe medications. They start out doing that, they fail, and then they, you know, they'll decide later on that they want surgery. But I definitely open the conversation the first day. I let everybody know all the options. 
I agree. You know, that was one of the things I loved in my old practice is that we had that unique ability to offer it in a very underserved area. I also had the unique experience of working with both kids and adults and and young adults uh, after weight loss surgery. And one thing I really like people to remember is this is more of a circle. And so just because we think about weight loss surgery doesn't mean that medications don't have a role. So I always like to make sure they understand to close that loop back with an obesity medicine specialist, especially as they may age out of a pediatric practice such as yours. Yes. Good question. Thanks, Jenny. Um, on day one, when I first meet the patients, we talk about all different options of treatment. So we always start with lifestyle modification. We talk about medications and those patients who have a BMI of over 35 or 40, I always bring up surgery as a possible option. Depending upon how large the BMI is, I talk more about surgery. And I like to you know, tell them about the data that is involved with bariatric surgery. And I like to talk about the team labs data which was a prospective study that followed about 400 adolescents over five years. And they had significant improvements in weight, cardiovascular health, and quality of life. So I just let them know that we expect about 26% mean weight loss from the bariatric surgery. And that's in comparison to medications, which we get five to 10 and lifestyle modification, which we get around 5%, maybe less than 5%. Interestingly, from the team labs data, we know that 86% of the patients presenting with type 2 diabetes went into remission, about 81% normalized their triglycerides, and about 68% normalized their blood pressure. So we see amazing outcomes after the bariatric surgery. You know, some of the medications are coming close, the newer medications, but nothing is like bariatric surgery, especially for the patients presenting with severe obesity. I'd agree. I think it's a pretty exciting time to be in our field. And one of the things that I always like to discuss with patients is making sure we close that loop back with our obesity medicine specialists. As I just was reading a few studies the other day, looking at data in these young adults in their 20s who may have had bariatric surgery in adolescence. And we are seeing that as we relayer in pharmacotherapy after weight loss surgery, we might be able to even help them achieve an additional five to 15% on top of that total body weight loss they may have seen with surgery, really allowing Mm -hmm. us to see some of these fantastic additive effects. Wow. That's yeah. I'm not surprised. I I can see that. That's yeah. It's great. Well, Sherry, I just want to thank you so much for your time today. Do you have any last parting advice for our primary care colleagues as they continue helping us work on the treatment of this pediatric obesity epidemic? I think I'm just going to leave the parting message that prevention is really key and prevention messages should really permeate the office. There should be posters around and making sure that they talk about this at every single well child visit, even the sick visits, talking about how much TV the kids are watching, how much sleep they're getting, making sure that they're staying away from sugar-sweetened beverages. You, you can never get enough prevention. So I think I'll leave it at that. I do think they do a great job though. I know a lot of our pediatricians in our area try to do that. And I think, you know, we have to give them applause and that's it really. Thanks so much, Jenny. Well, you have a good rest of your evening, Sherry. See you too. And for our listeners, I want to thank you for joining us today.